The path to public school differs for many. For Michigan State Senator Winnie Brinks, it included serving as executive director for One Way House, a nonprofit serving nonviolent female offenders in a residential setting as an alternative to incarceration, as well as working with a number of public schools in the Grand Rapids area. After serving Michigan's House of Representatives for seven years, Brinks became the first woman elected to represent Grand Rapids in the Michigan Senate since 1920. On this episode of The Purposeful Pitch, my colleague Claire Leaning and I talk with Senator Brinks on the impact of COVID-19 on West Michigan. Our conversation took place shortly before the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, which is why the issue of systemic racism across the United States was not discussed during our interview. Great to have you on and appreciate a, a few minutes. Yeah, happy to do it. I mean, we know it's uh, we know it's a crazy time, uh, un- unfortunately, not crazy in a in a good way, uh, but uh, perhaps some good uh, does come out of this. But where where I'd really like to start is, uh, you know, seeing as as you know, Claire and I bro- both work uh, with uh, social impact. Um, your involvement with uh, with One Way House, uh, because before you were uh, in in public office, uh, you you were the executive director for uh, One Way House. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what One Way House is and and how you got involved uh, with that organization. Sure. Uh, One Way House was an alternative to incarceration for female offenders. Uh, And so folks that would have normally gone to jail or prison uh, were sentenced to um, to essentially do their time, quote unquote, in the community. Uh, So it was a residential program and we provided um, a lot of resources and enrichment activities uh, to help um, overcome some barriers to success. Uh, So a lot of help with, um, you know, searching for jobs. Um, becoming productive, getting some mental health counseling, sometimes substance use disorder counseling, which we weren't even calling that yet when <laughs> I was there. Um, uh, but just trying to help people um, who were convicted of felonies, but nonviolent offenses uh, kind of uh, get back on track. And so, um, yeah, we would uh, serve up to 35 women at a time in a residential setting right here in Kent County. Uh, but we did take uh, folks from other counties on occasion as well. That's uh, must have been extremely rewarding, which kind of leads to my next question. You know, it's, it's always difficult to to pick one rewarding experience from so many. But I was just wondering, is is there was there one uh, you know story or or connection point that you had you know during your time there that that was the most rewarding? Uh, there's certainly lots of individual stories. Um, I try not to talk about uh, too many. Uh, very specific cases just to protect folks um, in terms of their identity. A lot of um, people would move on after that uh, and, um, you know, don't necessarily want to be reminded of their interaction Hmm. with the criminal justice system. So, uh, but there were a lot of uh, things that we were able to do. One of the um, uh, unique things about the One Way House is that it was for women. Um, And there were only uh, two programs that were residential alternatives to incarceration uh, for women in the entire state at the time. Uh, and so we were pretty proud of our work. Um, and while I was there, we expanded from uh, serving five people at a time all the way up to 35. Uh, and we started working with women and their children. So, um, you know, now when we talk about those things in the nonprofit world, we talk about taking a two generational approach um, or multi generational approach to issues. And so um, we, we knew that was really important. 
Um, and so we, we began that work, but you know, that was the nineties. And uh, it seems like a lifetime ago in some ways, but um, we were already starting to work on some of those concepts then. Uh, and so I'm, I'm pretty proud of the, the things that we started working on. Mm, the 90s. I had a few a uh, few less wrinkles uh, then, so I, I'm familiar with that time. Uh, I, but just wondering, so so what was the, you know, why did you shift? I mean, as rewarding as, as that experience was, you know, why did you shift from leading a nonprofit to going into public service? I mean, I know that there's a connection point there, uh, but, uh, you know, so it's not that surprising a leap, but wondering what, what led you to that? So um, I worked in community-based corrections for several years, uh, and then I also worked in education uh, as well as other nonprofits, um, and um, most recently in workforce and talent development and, and uh, job retention. Um, and so um, I would say the unifying thing about my uh, career in nonprofits and education was assisting individuals and families in overcoming barriers to success. Uh, whatever those were, whether those were in a school setting or in a community setting or in a work setting. Um, and uh, when I was presented with the opportunity to run for office in 2012, um, I really uh, had to take a hard look at um, my priorities because I did enjoy my work in the nonprofit sector. Um, but it was an opportunity, I think, to um, take what I learned interacting with so many parts of state government um, so many of the departments that serve our, our constituents and our citizens, um, and being able to say, I can shape policy that um, on the big picture level will have a greater impact than I can one person at a time in a different way. Mm. So, um, you know, I have a great and deep appreciation for uh, folks in the trenches doing the hard work every day. Um, and I understand what that's like. Um, and I try to bring that to my work every day in the Capitol. That's fantastic. And and it sounds like you really are have been able to do that successfully. I know um, you recently secured a million dollars in funding for community programs at the United Methodist Community House in Grand Rapids. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, that was that was a great day. It was a, a wonderful achievement. We were able to come to uh, a bipartisan agreement about um, some money that was uh, still kind of sitting on the ledgers for the remainder of this uh, calendar year. Um, and so the United Methodist Community House uh, has been it's one of the oldest nonprofit organizations in uh, maybe even in the state. Uh, and I think it's uh, maybe even 100 years old. So uh, wow. it has a long, long history of helping folks in, in uh, the neighborhood where it's situated. It's also one of the most um, uh, the, the communities that experiences the most poverty and disadvantage in uh, Grand Rapids. So I was really eager to, um, to work with them on this project. Uh, and we were, as you said, able to secure that million dollars. However... Hmm. Because of COVID, uh, we were asked to, uh, well, basically it was uh, that appropriation was erased. Mm. So <clears throat> that along with several other uh, very good things were uh, erased. So um, uh, we are now moving that from uh, this year's list to our long-term goal list. Uh, and we will not forget about it. We're going to keep pursuing that. Yeah, that's, a, that's unfortunate. And yeah, and it's 
not surprising, uh, you know, given what we we heard last week as a, as far as you know budget shortfalls, uh, you know, specific to the the school aid fund and and elsewhere, um, you know that uh, you know some appropriations are, are going to have to be um, uh, removed, but you know understand that that you're you're the you're the first woman to represent Grand Rapids uh, in the Michigan Senate since 1920 uh, and uh, Eva McCall Hamilton. So which is quite an accomplishment. But just wondering, you know, what what do you attribute to, to that long gap uh, between, you know, women leading, uh, you know, in, in the Senate uh, in the, from the Grand Rapids area? Yeah, that was um, a big surprise to me as well when I read about that. Um, and even in the state house, there had been women uh, who had represented pieces of Grand Rapids in the state house, um, but not ever um, really being from Grand Rapids and representing Grand Rapids. Uh, and so even in 2012, I was surprised to hear how little female representation we'd had in one of our most populous counties where we tend to see a movement like that happen a little bit sooner than other areas of the state. Um, so it was interesting to me uh, that we had had such a long gap. And I did a lot of thinking about that uh, when I was running, especially for Senate in 2018. And um, I kind of concluded that it's really important for us to be to celebrate firsts and to acknowledge them. But sometimes we get a little bit complacent after we've achieved some sort of uh, first or significant milestone. Uh, and we don't recognize that um, being second, third, fifth, tenth is just as important sure. if we ever want it to be normal. If we ever want, you know, I mean, really, in some ways, it's really cool to be special. Um, but what would be even better is if this was so normal, nobody even noticed that something unusual had happened. So, um, yeah, my goal is to to normalize participation uh, in the halls of power for all women. Absolutely. And, you know, to that end, what are some of the barriers that you still see as as some of the biggest obstacles to women looking to run for office? Uh, I, I would say there's a lot of folks who um, who think about whether or not they're the best person for the job rather than uh, if they are the person who... Um, I, I guess maybe I should phrase it differently. Uh, if if you think about only am I the best person for the job, you're constantly looking for somebody who's better rather than saying, I have a lot of great things to offer. I know that's true. I want this job. I'm interested in this job. Let's go for it. Um, so I think we wait sometimes for um, for those sort of secondary affirmations or we think there's a long list of qualifications that need to be checked off before we even think about signing up. Uh, and <clears throat> I didn't really have that opportunity in, in the circumstances that I ran. Um, they came to me and I had to make a decision very quickly um, because of uh, some unusual things that had gone on. A guy had switched parties and we had to decide to run a write-in campaign. And so it was sort of not your normal decision-making process, um, but that also gave me a lot more insight um, watching others and how they got there compared to how I got there. Um, and it's been a really fascinating journey that way. That's great. And do you feel like we're doing, we're doing any better than we have in years past in terms of 
making the road to public office a little bit uh, more clear for women who are interested? I think we actually are. And I think we've gotten, um, we have some proof of that too. Uh, in the state Senate now, um, in, among the Democratic caucus, we have parity between men and women. That's the first time in any of the four caucuses in the entire history of our state that we've had an equal number of men and women in one caucus. Uh, and that changed drastically. So um, you all know Governor Whitmer, uh, and when she first started in the Senate, and she tells this story, uh, there were more people named John. In the <laughs> yep, I remember her saying that. <laughs> it's a relatively small body. It's only 38 uh, senators. So, um, you know, so that tells you how far we've come in uh, basically about 15 years. Um, so great. We, we've done a lot better. And I think people are starting to recognize um, that women make great legislators for a variety of reasons. Uh, and people have gotten a lot more comfortable with that in the general public. Uh, and <clears throat> we're even seeing that it's an advantage to be a woman when we have issues that are on the table that really question our role or question our power, question our place uh, or diminish uh, our ability to do certain things. Uh, when those things are challenged, people understand they need somebody there who looks like them, who's going to bring their voice to the table. Yeah. And that's that's to your earlier point. Let's hope this is the normal right moving forward and, you know, not something that needs to be celebrated is just uh, seen as how things are and, and should be. Um, we touched very briefly on on COVID-19 uh, in some of our earlier points, but it, it's, it's obvious that it's turning worlds upside down. Um, so just wondering, what do you see as the, the biggest issues facing Grand Rapids uh, and the state? And, and for those who aren't familiar with Grand Rapids, there has been, you know, tremendous progress and growth uh, in the region over the past decade. I'm, I'm from New York originally and moved here uh, 12 years ago. I'm not I'm not going to take credit for that growth, but hey, so be it, uh, you know, coincidental, perhaps, but whatever. Uh, so I'm just, you know, I, it. It hurts me a little bit to see that progression uh, impacted, but I'm just wondering, you know, what what do you see as the biggest issues as it relates to, you know, continuing that growth uh, in Grand Rapids and across the state in 2020 and over the next five years? Yeah, certainly COVID has thrown a wrench into um, uh, a lot of plans um, and a lot of uh, great things that we've had going on, certainly in West Michigan. Um, <clears throat> I think... West Michigan has been quite resilient in, in um, its economic, um, uh, I really want to use the word fortitude, right? But we've been really, uh, I feel like we've been in a, a very good position for several years now, in part because our economy is um, quite diverse. Uh, we don't have all of our eggs in one basket. Um, we've, we're one of those sort of mid-sized cities that has a lot of draw for young people. Um, and we've got a lot of, uh, we've got a great climate for entrepreneurship. Uh, we've got great cultural life. We've got wonderful sort of quality of life and natural amenities. And um, so there's a lot to love about Grand Rapids in terms of evaluating where you'd like to live. Um, and so if you're a, a, you know, a young professional or a family and you're looking for any of those ingredients, Grand Rapids hits a lot of boxes. Mm. Um, and so <clears throat> I think that's one of the things over the last 10 years, we've seen our population grow. We've seen our levels of education um, uh, stay really steady and, and increase in terms of college attainment. Uh, and so I think we're really 
um, we're really reaping the benefits of some of that economic diversity and that that um, sort of cultural bounty we have here. Um, it's not for you know it's not true for everybody, uh, but in general we've had. Um, I love representing Grand Rapids and Kent County. It's a great place to live. So um, as long as we can say that, uh, you know, I think that we've got a lot going for us. Um, this will certainly present us with huge challenges for our economy, uh, even given our strengths. So um, we're going to have to pull together. We're not exactly sure um, about the budget hits that we're going to take at the state level yet uh, and the impact that that will have on uh, really, really core important issues that governments provide um, and services that governments provide like education and public safety. So, um, yeah, we're going to have to work really hard to make sure that we're making adjustments uh, in a way that uh, helps folks kind of who haven't seen the success that most of our population has uh, and in a way that protects the gains that we have made. So um, no question, there are huge challenges in front of us. Yeah, a tremendous philanthropic community as well, uh, which hopefully can help uh, bridge, you know, some of that or support that um, uh, that recovery as well. And yeah. and, you know, speaking of recovery, you know what? So what can local citizens, you know, your local Joes like me? I mean, is it what can we do uh, to expedite recovery? I mean, what should we be thinking about and what should we be doing? Yeah, so I guess my, my, you know, a lot of times if you ask that question, people say, go out and spend the money you have, you know, support your local businesses. And that's all very important. Um, but I also want us to keep in mind that without the confidence of consumers, without the confidence of workers, none of that's going to work. So I think what we need to be doing is being uh, very diligent, even though we're all sick of it, um, being really diligent about taking care for um, uh, the the really what I would call the least among us. You know, we keep talking about people who are essential workers. Yet if we look at how we quote unquote reward those essential workers, it doesn't match up with how important we realize they truly are. Um, and so uh, what I would suggest to people is that they um, act with great care so that we can have more confidence in our, our ability to participate economically. So, um, you know, listen to those public health people, take those precautions, encourage um, folks that you uh, advise and, um, you know, um, businesses that you, you uh, patronize to do the right thing, not just for their customers, not just for their business, but for the workers who are there um, and reward those kinds of activities. I think that we will be um, stronger in the end if we can uh, make sure that we're doing all of those things. Because Really, there is no job that's not essential. Um, asking a whole lot of people who are on the front lines. Yeah, and and to that end, you know, there's so many different um, there are so many different initiatives that were underway to make sure that that all residents have the supports that they need and and are being looked out for by their state government. And it's amid COVID-19, you can see how a lot of these things would be put on hold. But, you know, for example, you were appointed by the governor to a pre prescription drug task force. And um, I think that was maybe earlier in the year. And those recommendations are due, I think, in August. So yeah. is work like that continuing despite everything else that's going on right now? It's certainly been delayed. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a slightly later um, kind of due date for that work. Um, but yeah, all of those things are still important, right? So right. Um, because we've added 
um, additional things that are important doesn't mean that things that we were working on before aren't also um, still there and in some cases even more important than they were before. So um, it's especially when we're starting to talk about healthcare, uh, who gets it, how affordable it is, that kind of question is even more pertinent in a, in a health crisis. Right. Absolutely. And and another thing that impacts community health is PFAS, an issue that you've been deeply ingrained in and working to ensure that Michigan leads the nation um, in terms of standards that protect communities. So um, what's the status of that work? Is, is that able to, to move forward? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the department has continued to working on uh, drinking water standards. So maximum uh, limits allowed in uh, drinking water that's provided by drinking water systems. So um, that is all work that is in progress and is on schedule at this point. Um, so we're hopeful that those kinds of things uh, are implemented with fidelity. Uh, sometimes they're going to cost money. So, you know, there are budgetary questions. Um, but the, the folks that were promised that we were doing something about it and um, the people who are counting on having clean water and being made whole um, to the extent possible by the actions of the folks that represent them deserve us to stay on schedule and to, um, to pay attention to that just like we were before. Right. And just, you know, one final question, uh, Senator Brinks, and, you know, this, this comes from, you mentioned your, your, um, connection with education earlier, and, and certainly it's, it's in, uh, the sweet spot for, for Claire and myself, given our work with school districts across Michigan, uh, you know, with the budget cuts, and I don't want to put you on the spot. I'm not expecting, you know, you have the solution, but, you know, what would you say to schools as there's so much uncertainty, not only surrounding the budget, but, just school in general. I mean, as far as starting time, where it's going to happen, you know, what 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 conversations are you having with schools, uh, and 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 helping them, uh, you know, prepare for the next couple of months and years. So, in uh, I've had lots of conversations, even just today, with schools, um, with a group of superintendents, with a group of teachers. Um, that's you know, that's just my the first two hours of my day today. So, <laughs> uh, and I've got another town hall with uh, teachers from across the state later today. So um, it's, it's certainly a really, really important issue. It's one of the key things in our constitution that we are required to do, provide, um, you know, K through 12 education. And um, so it's part of our core responsibility as legislators to make sure that that happens. Uh, so one of my um, overarching and guiding principles as we look at our budget this year, which will be very difficult, not just finishing this year, but of course next year as well, mm -hmm. uh, is to make sure that we are protecting those core responsibilities. Uh, and so I think we need to be prioritizing, uh, making sure that we're putting resources into K through 12 education uh, and that we're helping um, school districts across our state adjust to the new realities, which could cost even more than uh, what we were doing before. Um, so it's gonna be really important for us to, and I would encourage people to ask their legislators and representatives and senators for a commitment that they will uh, prioritize K through 12 education, because without that, um, you know, we will see ripples on our economy for many years to come. So uh, it's important to our kids' health and well-being to their individual success and progress in life. It's important to families for the, the child care and supervision and the, the socialization aspects of things. It's important to many families for food. 
Um, and so there's so many roles that schools play. Um, and I'll just end with that. I think uh, there's a deep appreciation for uh, what teachers do for our kids every single day. Uh, in, in the absence of uh, those folks um, actively participating in the lives of our children, uh, we've really realized uh, what they're missing. So hopefully we'll be able to get back to some semblance of normal and bring back some of those really positive uh, aspects of education, despite the fact that we've spoken in our community. Yeah, I mean, fingers crossed, and and we know you have to run, uh, Senator Brink. So thank you so much for your time today, and uh, certainly many challenges ahead, uh, and wishing you the best of luck uh, in your work. Uh, and uh, we, again, we know that there's much work that needs to be done, uh, and appreciate you giving us uh, your time today. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Great. Thank Thanks. you, Senator. Bye. Bye-bye.